on Let Me Be Frank. We have a packed show today. His Excellency is going to talk about three general topics, starting with where we stand as a diocese with COVID. And then he's going to dive into the recent instructions from the Congregation for Divine Worship on the traditional Latin Mass. And then finally, His Excellency will teach us about the new ministries of lector, acolyte, and catechist. Gosh, this is going to be a big one. So keep your radio right here at 1350 AM or 103.9 FM, or keep us on your phone with the Veritas mobile app. If you haven't already, you can kick off the new year by downloading the Veritas app on your phone. Just go to the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or veritascatholic.com. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad, the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank. I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce again Bishop Frank Caggiano. <laughs> Steve, it's good to see you. Happy, happy New Year. Happy Epiphany. Happy you. New Year. Uh, Merry Christmas. Um, and all the as rest. We, yes, as we were talking uh, offline, um, so Christmas goes until this Sunday. You said Jesus' baptism. Yes. And then yes. Um, I thought I'd ask you uh, about the, the the some people also will celebrate Christmas through the presentation, which is February 2nd. Yeah, and that was the older calendar, right? It was okay. the Sundays after Epiphany. See, Epiphany, we've spoke about this before. Epiphany has, there's three Epiphanies. Epiphanos, the coming of the light. So it is the coming of the Magi, the revelation of Jesus as the light of all the world, it is the baptism in the Jordan River, where he begins, he blesses the waters of the world to be the vehicle through which the, his future disciples could be baptized, and the wedding feast at Cana, which is the first of the of the seven signs mm-hmm. of Jesus's ministry, right? Where water becomes wine as the preamble of wine becoming his body and blood, soul, and divinity, right? So, in a sense, we kind of like put them all together. But if I'm not mistaken, the Sunday after the baptism traditionally is the gospel of the wedding feast at Cana. Hmm. So the church had that intuition of breaking open the mysteries of Epiphany, and it would take a good amount of time. So we go all the way to the presentation, which is um, what are the joyful mysteries? Obviously, the rosary, right? Yeah. So... Um, so technically, Christmas ends with the baptism of the Lord, but it, it is um, it, it, there is also an intuition to keep extending it to February 2nd, which is what we used to do. So those who observe that are, are certainly following that intuition, right? Okay. That the church had. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I guess... Question is, the question is, when do you take down your Christmas tree? That is the question. <laughs> When do you take yours down? We we always take ours down um, at the baptism. Yeah, so that'll so. be Sunday after Sunday it goes. Right. Yeah. Now I must make a confession. Uh huh. <laughs> okay. 
Um, I, the, the decorations I have, both in Stanford and at the apartment in Brooklyn, all right, I take them all down, all right, right after the baptism, except the tree itself, because mine is a little baby tree. Mine's uh -huh. like more of a bush than a tree. <laughs> With the white lights, I keep it for a few weeks longer, just the tree and the white lights. Okay. And it's simply because I find winter so depressing. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's such a beautiful glow. So in a sense, I kind of follow the same intuition that a good part, good part of January still has the tree only with light, no decorations, everything's gone, manger's gone, but kind of like to fill in the darkness with light. Mm. So nice. there must be some deep psychological issue going on <laughs> that somebody can diagnose. <laughs> so anyway. Anyway. So, uh, you know, the other thing I want to ask you, Excellency, is uh, do you have any resolutions for the new year oh yes every year i start with a diet okay so far we're still on it right <laughs> we're still on it it's not saying much but we're still on it um i made the resolution to read spend more time reading because 2021 there was precious little time yeah and um but I don't give like a, a certain amount of time every day because some days I may have more than others, but to intentionally reserve more time to read. Yeah. And not just theological things, just things of interest. Okay. That's what I was, yeah. So not just for work, but for fun as well. Right. And, and in fact, since uh, um, New Year's Day, I've gone online and read some really fascinating articles on astronomy, as you uh -huh. know, and yeah. singularities. And the competing theories now about what's, what traditionally has been called in astronomy the Big Bang and how there's alternative theories now. And it's just so fascinating. Wow. And if there was a singularity, how big would it be? So like one astronomer holds the hypothesis that, that the, the singularity from which everything else came would have been the size of a city block. That's all? Others... Uh, yeah. Wow. Others consider it, it would have been the size of a human person. Oh, wow. Some hold that it would be infinite. It would, it would, by definition, have to be infinite in size, but even though it would be minuscule. So it would, in a strange sort of way, it would appear to be minuscule, infinitesimally minuscule, but it was infinite in itself. These sort of things just have my, like, I, I could feel my head hurt. We felt like <laughs> But I love it. <laughs> I love it. And now Hubble just released some photos yesterday. Magnificent photos. Two colliding galaxies. You just look at the picture and I just get lost in it. Wow. As to what that means in, wow. the, in the whatever exists in all those planets and stars, hundreds of millions and billions of them. So that excites me, that resolution. I think it's going to be mostly on this sort of material. So it may okay. not be theological, but oh. anyway. Those now, are my two. So, is this the, is, is are those the kind of questions that we will have answered uh, if God willing we get to heaven one day? Will we know yeah, like about the beginning of the universe? Yeah, I would think. Well, we'll be in the presence of all truth. Yes, but okay. they will not have the fascination that we have now with them, because we'll have the fullness of life. So it's almost like. Once you get to the end of the story, does it really matter how you got to the end of the story? Like the, the subplots, right? Right. <laughs> that's, 
But I presume we would have an intuition of it all. It, it's yeah. just that, again, it, um, we live in very small worlds that we create for ourselves. And that small thinking has created a lot of problems in the contemporary world. Yeah. What expands the horizon of your thinking? Faith does, right? Certainly a relationship with Christ does. But what else in your life does that forces you to, to examine the context and the presumptions of your life? See, New Year's would be a great time for people to do that and invest in those things that force you to think broader, deeper, and I would say more wisely, that present questions that don't have necessarily easy answers. Because when they force you to think bigger, then your world finds its proper place. Your problems don't seem as big. Mm. Your concerns have their proper context, mm -hmm. right? So what makes you think bigger? What gives you a headache thinking about it? That could be a great New Year's resolution for everyone to say, okay, I'm going to invest in that. Hmm. Yeah, I just, um, when you think of the magnitude of what exists, the fact that they didn't pick up my garbage this morning, for argument's sake, like, so? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. It's all about broadening out your world. And we've talked often, often, often about how good people get caught up in their own little worlds. Even what we talked about offline, right? Yes. About celebration in Lent. And some people wonder whether we should have it or not. Well, yeah. I mean, it all depends on the starting point that you, you begin with, right? It's the, it's the world that you begin with. And, and, and faith always wants you to expand it, make it more inclusive, broader, more diverse. Because God transcends everything that we could possibly think of or categorize or organize. So, anyway. Okay. All right. So, uh, we've, got, uh, we've got some big topics we're going to discuss today. You know, it's yes. New Year, same old stuff. <laughs> I know. <laughs> to a degree. But, um, yeah, I know. I, you know, I guess we can start with... Uh, you know, the state of, of, of the world with regards to health and COVID and wearing masks and right, all that stuff. Right, right. Yeah, I think, well, we've gone through a very interesting time, interesting in so, in so much as I don't think anyone imagined the, the, the direction that the pandemic would have taken just in the last six weeks with the Omicron. Yeah. You know, to hear that something's highly contagious is one thing, but to see it in full bloom, where we have, you know, 400,000 new infections every day in the United States. is someone no one anticipated. Right. But this is, so it has practical implications, and it has also, I think, a ray of hope. Let's start with the ray of hope. For any pandemic, let's state the obvious, the coronavirus the one, COVID-19, is not going away. It never will go away. So the real question is, how do we get it to a point where the virus is not um, as deadly as its first form and that we can manage it by technique and by medicine? And the truth is, I think we're at the cusp of doing that. Omicron may be the final chapter where the pandemic becomes just a part of the endemic. Mm -hmm 
challenges we all face, including the flu and all its variations. Because the herd immunity that everybody's been talking about, I think will naturally occur between the people vaccinated, the people who have fallen ill, and the people who are not vaccinated who have fallen ill. There will be enough. I think the, the threshold is 85% of the population will have had some immunity. So this could be the beginning of the end of what we call a pandemic. Yeah. So as much as it's hard to go through, that should give us some hope, really. And I'm, I'm praying for that. In the short term, from what I can gather, maybe you have seen something different. Everything I have heard is that Omicron is, um, is less virulent so that the amount of those who are getting severely ill is not similar to what we had at the beginning of the pandemic. And therefore, um, to the extent that we need to mitigate it, we can do exactly what we've been doing all along, right? Wearing masks for the protection of others, not so much for the protection of yourself. For those who, who um, have not yet been vaccinated, to give serious consideration to be vaccinated, and those who are vaccinated to be boosted so that we can get to that herd immunity, really, is really what it comes down to. That is why there is no need for closure. There is no need for schools to go into lockdown or to go fully remote for months and months and months. All those, the, that era is over for us. Yeah. And that's good news in that sense, right? Practically, from our perspective, there is some sort of confusion because the CDC changed its its um, guidance on quarantining, right? right? You've seen that. Yes. From 10 days to five days. And people will say, well, why is that happening? The interesting thing is it's based not on anything other than a, almost two years worth of the history of contact tracing. Hmm. And something that I found very startling when I heard it was that from studies all around the world, the largest being in Taiwan, there has been no evidence, no evidence of contagion being passed from person to person from the sixth day on post-infection. Huh. So the CDC reduced it from 10 to five. Many people are kind of cynical and say because it's economic and political, but actually the evidence is there's not a single incident that anyone can point to in all the contact tracing we have done that shows that someone was, was infected by someone who was infected six days after the infection. Yeah. So they reduced it to five, right? To try to keep life as regular as possible, particularly for our school kids, right? Yeah, particularly right. for those who are essential workers. But, um, but the real, one of the thresholds, it's interesting, uh, when, when the staff met, the curial staff met, it seems that people are really getting upset about any possibility of a mandate to wear masks, all right, in, in indoor settings, because they see it as an infringement of their rights, they believe that it's not effective, whatever else it may be. Um, in fact, the evidence is mask wearing is effective. 
even even the cloth, even the surgical mask, if you don't wear an, an N95, because it's a whole the whole question is mitigating the exposure to the virus load that you would then be ingesting that could either get you sick, right, or pass it on to someone else. Yes. So so it's clear, the evidence, the medical evidence is clear, wearing a mask is effective. It depends on the type of mask you wear, how effective it is. So our policy in the diocese is we do not mandate mask wearing. We follow the local norms of cities and states. Part of my reasoning there is we have done it to this point. So for us now to presume we know better, I think is problematic since I would hope and I expect and I would would assume that our civil authorities are following the advice of doctors and epidemiologists and the rest. Uh, case in point, changing the quarantine time. If you go on social media, it's all politicized. But in fact, there's scientific evidence that backs why they're doing what they're doing. Same thing with mask wearing. So we're we leaving it up. We, we follow the norms. But having said that, absent requiring masks, which we are not doing, we are strongly encouraging people to wear them at mass because it's prudent and prudent is one of the cardinal virtues. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't is one thing. If you do and could unbeknownst to you have prevented someone from getting sick, what's the prudent action for a Christian to do? Clearly number two. So we are strongly encouraging, and we're asking all the pastors to encourage their parishioners to wear them and provide masks for those who may not have brought one if they choose to wear one, but they are not required. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to, uh, you brought up, Excellency, uh, the, the march toward herd immunity, which is mm -hmm. a combination of the vaccinated plus the people who have natural immunity from catching covid Right. And I, I, I kind of wish our political leaders would talk more about those folks, the people who have the natural immunity, because uh, at least I, I guess I don't listen to the news as much as I used to um, by choice. <laughs> but but when I do hear it, you know, they're only talking about vaccinations. And it, it feels like I've talked to a few Catholic doctors myself and, and they say, yeah, you know, the natural immunity needs to be a part of that equation and a part of the discussion. Yeah, I'm, I, I think part of it, again, I'm not a doctor, so I will defer to the doctors and nurses and medical personnel who may be listening to this podcast, and certainly I will accept their correction. Um, my understanding is that natural immunity um, gives you a spectrum of protection, which may not always be as broad as what vaccination the immunity that comes from vaccination. So it's it's similar to when you know you look at influenza. Now I actually contracted the flu in the fall, right? And it was influenza A, which turns out to be ver worse than influenza B. I'm told. And the only reason I know that is because I got tested for COVID because it had many of the similar symptoms, and COVID came back negative, and influenza A came back positive, right? So I did not get vaccinated. I did not get vaccinated for the flu this year because I didn't have, quite honestly, I, I 
didn't have the time and I didn't make the arrangements, so I developed the influence. Anyway, what's my point? My point is, I think it, it, it's, it is a risk for someone to, not, to avoid being vaccinated with the understanding that if I get sick, I'll develop natural immunity. It's almost as if you're inviting the possibility of getting sick when you may not know what the consequences are for you getting sick with this virus, because we have seen it affect different people in different ways. Again, I don't believe that's prudent. Now, we've talked about vaccines and, you know, conscientious objection and all the rest, and all of that standing as is, um, a person should, every person should seriously consider being vaccinated because of the broader spectrum of protection it grants since there isn't really in the teaching of the magisterium a moral prohibition against being vaccinated. But you're still free to make your own choice. Right. Right? Yes. And I always would respect that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's when you come to children that becomes more of the issue. Right? And so far there is no mandate that's forcing vaccination for children. Right? In the state of Connecticut. And as we've talked about, I would personally oppose that, not because of the fact that children shouldn't be protected, because I believe they should be, but I believe parents need to be part of that equation in making that decision, that parents should not have that taken away from them and it being forced, at least not in this point, because the vaccines do not have the historic testing that they normally would before they're actually mandated, right? Yeah. So I think parents should have a voice in that. But yeah. I really appreciate, and I, I know I've heard from other listeners who really appreciate your balanced approach to this, because the issue has become so politicized, and um, it's it's right. unnecessarily become a divisive issue. But within the church, in particular, yeah, no doubt, right? Yeah, yeah. I I had a very dear friend of mine who sent me an email of a parent in a different part of the country, of a parent who was claiming to object to the mandate uh, that uh, her child needed to wear a mask, because in this part of the country, it's mandated, right? Because God has given that child a right to breathe freely without hindrance. And therefore, the, on a religious grounds, they, and I'm thinking to myself, but you have got to be kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I... You, and now we're blaming God for everything. <laughs> <laughs> I think... No, well, come on. <laughs> you know, one of the things that you said uh, right as we dis began this discussion was um, you talked about hope. And it, it feels like... The, I, pl I, place, I place a large chunk of blame, maybe wrongly, but I, I do... Uh, at the feet of our politicians on both sides of the aisle right now with this, with regards to this, because I almost feel like if they, do, if they just started out by saying two, two things from the beginning, maybe we wouldn't be so divided on this and so heated on this. And um, there wouldn't be a loss of trust in what our politicians are saying on both sides. And, you know, in, so the first thing I, I is... Instead of being like dogmatic about this is the one thing that will fix it, and then later as the science, you know, as they get more science, they're like, no, 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 now this is the one thing. If they just said, listen, 
it's a new virus. We're figuring it out as we go along. And as we learn more, the tactics may need to change along the way. Right, right. And See, I think, I think politicians fall into, that, into the mistake of not giving context to their decision. I think that's another way of what you're saying. Yeah. Religious leaders do the same thing at times. So, for example, the fact that we are qualitatively in a different situation than in March of 2020... Because in March of 2020, we had no idea what this virus was. We had no idea what it did. And therefore, some of the draconian things that were done was to try to protect human lives until we figured out that's qualitatively different yes. than where we are now. But, but see, when politicians or, or elected officials, they, unfortunately, we live in a world that's only headlines. So... Even if they gave the context, you wouldn't see it on the news. But to your point, that context should give the background that should make the decisions that they're asking us to consider ha- make more sense. Yes. Right? Yes. Yep. So in the end, it's <laughs> politicians are reactive creatures. They do what they think their people want them to do. So let's be really blunt. If we don't like the way politicians are acting, who elected them? (laughs) And who creates the expectation? Who ultimately needs to hold them accountable? Or maybe we should change the things we expect and have a different set of expectations. And what we may discover is our politicians will begin to act differently. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. I'll give you a perfect example of what I mean. Okay. Let me get political for a second. All right. Senator Manchin in West Virginia. Okay. Whatever you think of him. Right? It's interesting when you hear commentary, when people say he should have, he should exercise leadership and exercise leadership in the broader stroke of looking at what the needs of the country are when he makes his decision. What's interesting is he would counter by saying, I was elected to represent the people of my state. I was not elected to represent the people of all 50 states. Now, why I raise this is because what's the expectation when you vote for the people on the ballot in Connecticut? or New York, or West Virginia? What, what are you actually electing? What, what do you expect them to do? Do you expect them to represent your interests? Do you expect them to represent the national interests? Do you expect them to be independent thinkers? Do you expect them to follow what you would do if you were in their place because you put them in office, you're basically their employer? What's the expectations? My sense is they have shifted in the last 30, 40 years. Because if people treated themselves with respect, then you could be elected to represent the interests of Connecticut or the people of Fairfield County, but you could have a civil conversation with someone from West Virginia or Hawaii or California and come up with something that could represent everyone's interests. But absent that, what? happens yeah 
You either elect people represent local interests, that's your, your, your guiding principle, mm-hmm. right? And then you have gridlock, or you, you listen to rhetoric that's soaring that says, we're going to solve everybody's problems because I'm elected to represent the people of the United States. No, you're not, but you're not. So what are we expecting? It's an interesting question to raise, to talk yeah. about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> we're stirring we the pot. conversation. Yes, yeah. we are. But well, let's, let's take a break, Excellency. Uh, when we come back from the break, we're going to stir the pot even more vigorously, I think. Excellent. Okay. You're listening to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network with Bishop Frank Caggiano. We'll be right back. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. So, Excellency, so now that we've got 2022 off to a rocking start on this show. Oh, my um, God. Let's I keep just, going. Yeah. And so, <laughs> I, just, I just, for me, I guess I, I want to bring up something that on a personal note just makes me sad um because i feel like there are certain folks in the hierarchy of the church who it seems like they almost almost have a a personal problem with the traditional latin mass and those who Mm -hmm. love that mass and so Mm -hmm. of course i'm talking about uh the congregation of the divine worships uh new instructions from december Mm -hmm. with regards to the to that mass and so Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I open it up to you, Excellency. Yeah, I, I again, I think there is some. Let's go to a hundred thousand feet and look down, so we understand where we're at. I think there are many, many issues at play here that raise some significant questions that we've talked about before, but now in the new instruction that came out from the Congregation for Divine Worship and Discipline of the Sacraments that we really need to give some some really serious reflection. The first is, as, as many of, uh, of our listeners know, the church, the Catholic church is actually a communion of churches. 
and the communion of churches, both Eastern and Western, have many different liturgical traditions and rites. And just as in the Latin church, the Roman church, we have had a, a uniform liturgy since Trent up to the reform in the Vatican Council. At the same time, all those centuries, you had Eastern churches and Maronites and Melkites and Coptics and so many others in union with Rome that had liturgies in different languages and the vernacular in so many different ways. So liturgical diversity has always been part of the church's life. What's interesting is, number two, is that in the reform of the liturgy, there were some basic principles. And those basic principles continue to be reaffirmed even in the instruction from the congregation and the use of what I'm going to, what we used to call the extraordinary form or the, or the, the ancient form or the older form. And one of them is the full active and conscious participation of the laity in the celebration. A lot has been written about that. Participation at mass is not just simply active that is singing and responding in word, but it's also disposition of spirit, and it can also be silence, right? Adoration, all of that is participating. That needs to be protected, right? So that's another principle here. That endures, right? When it comes to the, the rise of the extraordinary form, what we used to call the extraordinary form, there was the sense the hope of Pope Benedict that there would be, it would be the occasion to call the ordinary form and its celebration in dialogue with it so that some of the elements that were set aside in the renewal could be rediscovered for all Catholics. That did not happen. And what happened was that the extraordinary form was reintroduced and those who were attracted to it because of its beauty or its reverence or its use of the more or traditional uh, symbols, uh, they became a worshiping community and the rest of the worshiping community, which is by far the vast majority of Catholics, what Pope Benedict was hoping for did not happen. That some of the elements would have been reintroduced in the ordinary celebration of Mass on a given Sunday. So you may say, well, what are those? Well, it's the full patrimony of the church. It's so the hymnody of the church. It's Gregorian chant. It's the use of incense. It's the use of even some of the traditional languages, Greek and Latin, in the ordinary celebration of Sunday Mass. So that if you had people at Mass who spoke different languages, at least at one point at Mass, everyone would be using the same language together. Right? So that did not happen. So Pope Francis, his great desire is to reestablish a commonality of liturgical worship within the Roman Church, the Latin Church because lex orandi, lex credendi, right? The way we pray is also reflects what we believe. 
and he does not want pockets of people worshiping in very different ways. Because I'm not exactly sure Paul Benedict would have wanted that or does want that either. What he had hoped for did not happen. So in a sense, some of what's happening now is the Pope Francis is trying to bring this back to almost, if you will, force the cross-semination by restricting the use of the extraordinary form, but opening the question of how the ordinary form is being celebrated, which the Pope did in his letter, right? And the prefect did in his letter to this instruction. He basically said to the bishops, you need to use this opportunity to examine how the mass is being celebrated ordinarily and whether the very attributes that track people to the extraordinary form, right, the reverence, right, the beauty, the chant, uh, the incense, right, the, the, so the using of all the sensories, not just the mind, not just the, the, the ocular, the hearing, right, whether or not you're engaging in ordinary, and if you're not, what are you doing about it? Because my sense is, what's the hoped for desire? The hoped for desire would be that those who really find a home in the extraordinary form can continue to have that home. But those who are going there because they, they long for the reverence and the beauty could also find it in the ordinary form, which they may not find it now. And in the old days, remember, you used to have high mass, and then we used to have, I remember high mass was 1130, there was the choir and the hymns and the incense, and then nine o'clock mass was the kids' class, seven, it was, it's the children's mass, 730 was the low mass, we called the low mass, no music, very simple. So it, it, the, the instructions in a much larger question is how, how, how are we worshiping the Lord as a unified church? And can we, can we foster unity, respecting the fact that there's not always uniformity, but not leading to different camps in the church? Because that creates disunity. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, yeah, definitely makes sense, yes. All right, so I'll give you an example of what I mean, of how this can play itself out. There are some priests who prefer baptizing in the older form. And when they present this to their people, right, as an option, the people are naturally intrigued. You will hear commentary among some of those priests that the older form is quote-unquote better. Why? Because it has seven exorcisms and the new form has one. So when people like the Pope hear this, or they intuit this, they say to themselves, well, well, how could something be better or worse if it's the prayer of the church? So that's no longer a question of preference. It's a question of you're stating something about the value or even, in the worst case, the validity of the Reformed celebration of baptism. That's where the question of dissent came in, in the original modo proprio. We cannot abide dissent because then you're saying something way beyond what I would hope and pray the priest means to say when he says the things he says, whoever this, you know, if this priest happens to be in our midst. And we'll leave him hypothetical. Mm -hmm. 
right? So there are some real genuine concerns here that have to be addressed. So what does the new instruction say? Remember, the motu proprio gave to the congregation the ability to definitively, definitively interpret the motu proprio. So what does this mean for us? It means that I'm beginning a process of consultation with the priests of the diocese who celebrate the older form with the hope of issuing a new decree on Ash Wednesday that would address some of what I allowed in the first decree, which I may no longer be able to allow given the definitive interpretation of the motu proprio. And what are some of those things? So, uh, so I don't have a definitive answer. Come Ash Wednesday after, after the consultation and some discussion, reflection, I will have an answer. But the reading of the norms make it very clear that the celebration of confirmation and ordination in the older form has been abrogated. So we have had the celebration of confirmation in the older form in some of our parishes. That will no longer be allowed because according to the instruction, uh, Pope St. Paul VI abrogated the older form, clearly abrogated in 1971. So it is no longer valid to be used anywhere. So that will be a change. For those parishes that don't have the dispensation of location, we have to discern baptism, penance, anointing, and matrimony. Can they be celebrated in the older form? The initial read here is the answer is no. They may no longer. But I need to verify whether or not that is the case before I issue a decree saying they can no longer be done. Those are the sort of, of questions now that have to be thought through based on the norms. And there was talk, for example, of creating a lectionary in the vernacular based on the Missal of 1962, and the norms say that is not permitted. There is only one lectionary, and the one lectionary is for the Novus Ordo, for the ordinary, unique celebration of the sacrifice of the Mass. So those are the sort of things now that have to be clarified going yeah. forward. Mm-hmm. The Novus Ordo Mass, the way you describe it, Excellency, when it's done that way that you're saying is also otherworldly. It takes you to, you know, to uh, at least for me, for what, you know, what I find so attractive in the traditional Latin Mass, I have found in the Novus Ordo done the right way in, in, in some parishes here in, in, uh, in Bridgeport. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I guess I, so I have a question then about, uh, Oh, did you want to, did you have more? Yeah, What I wanted to say to you is I think I want to change the terminology if you don't mind. Okay. Right. And I think what has become very clear in my mind is the subtext to all of this discussion is the same subtext of that we talked about when we spoke of catechesis and evangelization. And that is, it's not a question of otherworldliness because in belief, even a mass celebrated terribly is otherworldly 
because we are at Calvary in grace. Yes. It really is. What is being engaged? Is it the mind, the heart, the will, or all three? And the goal is all three. And the great struggle is of the heart. When we speak about otherworldliness, that experience of being lifted out of yourself, or that is the question of the heart. Because in the mind, you know you are, you are united with, with Christ in his sacrifice. Yes. But you don't feel it. it does, it's not an existential reality because it's not engaging the heart. Right? One could have argued that at its worst, before the reform, it was all about the heart, not about the mind. Because people had no idea what was going on. And even with a missile, they were trained to think they were, they were, they were spectators at mass. And therefore, their minds were not engaged. Now, one could argue we went the opposite direction. Now, mm. your minds are engaged, but your hearts are not engaged, mm. right? Because mass should never be an experience that mimics any other human gathering. There's something unique to it. Yes. So again, it's where do we bring these two worlds together so that in the unique singular celebration of mass that people's minds, hearts, and wills are being engaged. So you go out and act differently than everybody else who's not a Christian or a Christian who's lukewarm. You yeah. act, you will say, yes, this man, this woman believes. Yeah. Right? That's the real question before us. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and it's going to be a very difficult conversation to have. Because unfortunately, we've talked about the Kool-Aid we're all drinking the Kool-Aid. Mm -hmm. And the Kool-Aid is, my life is all about me. Even among priests, when they celebrate Mass, it's my preference, my desire, my opinion, what I like. Well, no, not really. It's not, actually. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right? It's not. Okay. All right. So uh, there's, <clears throat> there's one other thing that I wanted to, uh, one other topic that uh, uh, I thought we could discuss this, mm -hmm. this week. And so that is... Um, so I guess around mid-year last year, Pope Francis made some changes in canon law to institute a few new roles for lay people, men and women, to yeah. uh, the ministries of acolyte, lector, and catechist. And so now yeah. mm -hmm. I know those words, and it sound, mm -hmm. but it sounds now like these are vocations that require a different kind of specific formation from what Absolutely. I know those words to be. Absolutely. This is really a major step forward. All right, so background really quick. For those men who are discerning a vocation to diaconate or priesthood, in their formation, they are instituted as readers and acolytes as part of, their, of the ministries given them towards entrance into holy orders. And Pope St. Paul VI was asked whether he would expand it out to the laity and theoretically said it would be possible, but it was never really implemented. Pope Francis implemented it. Now, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for two essential pieces to this. One, we are waiting for the right to be created that would be inclusive of men and women who are laity and not going on to sacred orders. And the second is, what is the formation, what's the 
eligibility requirements and the formation necessary to enter into the ministry because ministry is a permanent thing. So we're not talking a workshop is going to yeah, do it. Right. Catechist is the exact same thing. And the, the, the ministry of catechist in some parts of the world is very different from what we have here in the United States because in some parts of the world, the catechist is almost the parish leader absent the presence of a priest hmm. when priests are not available. So they not just teach the faith, but they call people to prayer. They offer the liturgy of the hours like morning prayer and evening prayer and celebrate what they can, which is allowed for the laity to do. That's true in Latin America, Central America, and Brazil. Right? Now, here in the United States, we don't have that situation. But the, but the right for the institution of a catechist did come out a few weeks ago. And in the preamble, it says very interestingly that the relationship of the catechist is to the bishop, not to the pastor. Because it's almost, in, if you want to see it, it's a form of leadership in this, in, the, in, the, in this mission of teaching and preaching the faith, and particularly teaching the faith and evangelizing people. That the person would be commissioned by the bishop to that ministry in collaboration with, you know, local leaders. But it's very different than the catechist that we traditionally call who teaches religious education in parishes. Now, who's eligible, how they formed, there's a working group at the USCCB that's working on this. So there will be nothing in 2022 ready for that. More than likely, it would be 2023. Then we have to establish the formation and call these people to institution, which only the bishops can, only the bishop can do. And so, so does this become a lifetime role or I, don't, I guess I don't know what it's, the... It's, it, it's a ministry that is given with the intent that it is the, really part of the fabric of your life. Okay. So I don't expect thousands of people. I expect a handful in each of these ministries because you have to discern it. You have to be formed. You have to continue your formation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's not going to upend what we have in the parishes. It's almost like there's a term in catechesis. We talk about master catechists, right? And those are people who have been formed and degreed and are available to train others. I think in a sense, this is what we're talking about here, is, is those individuals, few in number, who are truly formed, who will then help form others in the ministry at the service of local pastors, but in the name of the bishop. Okay. So much more over the next few years to figure figure out what that looks like. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's interesting. It's like uh, there are more and more opportunities for you know re quote regular Catholics to really um, you know Get become involved. more involved in the faith and, and make doubt. it you know a bigger part of their Without lives. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. men and women both. Yes. Right, absolutely. The interesting thing is I was speculating in my own mind on, on New Year's Day. I'm not sure why, um, but it crossed my mind. We are all expecting the new constitution on the Roman Curia, the reorganization of the Roman Curia. And it just crossed my mind. I said to myself, I wonder if the Pope will actually 
entertain the possibility of appointing a layperson to be prefect of a congregation. So that, I mean, that's technically not against the rules, obviously. Well, he's rewriting the rules. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which would be a fascinating thing. I know you have secretaries now who are lay people. Mm-hmm. You have secretaries now who are religious, right? I wonder. I wonder. Hmm. I have wow. no idea. Yeah. But we wow. will soon find out. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. But there's okay. nowhere in the gospel that says the head of a congregation has to be a cardinal. I mean, in other words, the, the right. structure of the church, the way it has evolved, I mean, the, the divinely mandated structure of de- deacon, priest, and bishop, of course, that is what it is. But I mean, in the administration of the, di- of the church, yeah. in the prefectures and in the congregations, we've created it and we've manned it only with clerics up to recent times. But it, that's not a divine mandate. Yeah. That's an administrative question. Yeah. Gosh. I mean, you can already start imagining there'd be great benefits to having lay people in some of those roles and then also great um, potential dangers or... or Oh, without the whole controversy of people getting very worked up. But I would say this, just for the record, before we end. When it comes to matters of finance, patrimony, property, administration... There may be some clerics, some cardinals, some bishops who have expertise in it. Mm-hmm. But the expertise lies among the laity to do this. Right. And a lot of the problems we have experienced is because we have not had the right lay leaders in those positions who are governing the patrimony of the church and the finances of the church in an open and transparent and business-like manner that is long overdue that we get that done. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Let's stay for the creed. All right. Okay, here we are. <laughs> well, let's, let's take one more break. This is Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. We'll be back on the other side with a listener question. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. So, Excellency, we, we received a really nice email from a teacher who said that she shares episodes of Let Me Be Frank with her class. And Oh, my. Yeah, and she said that <laughs> one of her former students recently came back and told her, this is a quote, I really miss I really miss listening to those podcasts with Bishop Caggiano. He was a really wise guy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So get that man's name. <laughs> <laughs> so she also wrote thanks to you and Bishop Frank for the continued great podcast and Merry Christmas. And so all right. So here's her question. She wrote, mm-hmm. "Does church tradition know anything about St. Peter's wife and family?" His mother-in-law is referenced in scripture, but I've never heard anything else about his wife or children, etc. That's a great question. It's a great question. And there is some tradition, but it's not a canonical tradition. In other words, it doesn't come out of the scriptures. But there are some traditions that claim that when Peter was chosen by Jesus... There's one school of thought that said he was already a widower and his wife had already died, which is interesting, which would have allowed for more of the availability that we see in the Gospels than if he had remained married, but if his wife was still alive. But the other thing we need to remember is extended family supported each other. So Peter could have gone on to ministry with the Lord and his wife and children and his family be cared for by the larger family. So either is possible. But there's a a, a third century tradition 
that says that that does name Peter's wife. I forget her, exactly her name that the tradition holds. That she was martyred, and Peter's children were martyred after Peter was martyred. And you could see that as being very feasible and plausible because Rome, if anything, was efficient in killing its opposition. Yeah. So what's the takeaway? We have no definitive record, but there seems to be at least echoes in the tradition that Peter's family was intimately tied with him and his fate and their fate were tied together, which would make sense particularly when Christians were persecuted. If Peter were put to death, why would his family not have been persecuted as well? Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Look at that. You cannot stump this man. <laughs> I invite you to send in questions to no, try. No, 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 no. <laughs> so if you have a question for Bishop Frank, you can send it in on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. You know that Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and so is Veritas Catholic Network. We would like to thank Foundations in Faith. A grant from the Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Excellency. Thanks for a great conversation this week. <laughs> yeah, thank you, my friends. It's always good to be with you. It is. As we start this new year, why don't we pray yes. right, for blessings? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we've begun this new year with great promise, with great hope. But we ask that your Spirit guide us, for this year will be filled with its own difficulties and challenges. May we rise to them wisely and courageously. May this year also allow us with grateful hearts to see the blessings you give us, great and small. Bring to us greater unity and patience, greater compassion and inner peace. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, my friend, next week I will see you. See you next week, Excellency. Okay, all the best. <laughs>